Welcome to the Inspiration Contagion podcast, where we spread inspiration one story at a time. I am your host, Holly Jean Jackson. Each episode spotlights and interviews one transformational leader, their stories, and their advice for how you too can lead yourself and others through inspiration. If you are a visionary seeking to uplevel your leadership skills, then this is the podcast for you. I invite you today to spread inspiration like a contagion. Welcome to the Inspiration Contagion Movement. Did you know that Inspiration Contagion has a book series? In fact, the first book, Health Secrets for Raving Success, is now live. You can purchase it on Amazon, and soon it will be available on Audible. If you're looking to spread more inspiration and to learn more about how to thrive from a health foundation for success, I would love for you to consider purchasing a copy. And if you're trying to pay it forward, perhaps you could gift a copy to someone who has some health struggles or challenges facing them today. Again, feel free to purchase that from Amazon or visit my website at hollyjeanjackson.com. Welcome to episode 58 of the Inspiration Contagion podcast. This week I have with me Dr. Emily Balchettis. She's the Associate Professor of Psychology at New York University and the author of Clearer, Closer, Better, How Successful People See the World. She's directed an international team of scholars for over 20 years, conducting behavioral science research to uncover strategies to improve goal setting in individuals, teams, and organizations. She's published over 70 articles and is a TED speaker. Her TED video has been watched by over 4 million people. She collaborates with major companies, including GE, Nestle, Prudential, and others. So with that, welcome, Emily. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to have you here. So that's kind of a really amazing introduction, but why don't you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and your background? Sure. You know, I, I started my professional life, I guess, really wanting to be a musician. That's what I studied in, in college. That's what I thought my life path would, would take me down. And I still am a musician, but not professionally. <laughs> when I was in college, actually, I was you know studying saxophone performance, jazz and classical saxophone. And my saxophone teacher had a major stroke at 34 years old that paralyzed the whole left side of his body. And He's been such a good, he was such a good friend before and has continued to be a good friend for our, our family. But it did mean that, you know, at a really key point in my educational experience, I lost my teacher for all intents and purposes. And luckily, I had a wonderful support system in psychology. I was loving what I was doing there. And so that sort of decided my career path for me. And, and I've been doing research, looking at motivation, science, behavior change, what stands in the way of people accomplishing what they want to accomplish in their life, uh, not from a clinical perspective, but from an experimental behavioral science perspective. And I've been doing that, like you said, for about 20 years, tackling all kinds of problems that people face when it, you know, maybe it's about relationship goals that they have or health and fitness or, you know, financial investments, you know, the, the goals are really quite different, but oftentimes those obstacles and some possible solutions to work through those obstacles are the same. So that's, that's what we've been doing. 
Beautiful. So cool. It's so great to meet a fellow musician. I also started my career in music performance and decided for me personally that it just was going to ruin my passion. I did the minor in that. And also like you, I'm still a musician, but definitely not professional. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing how these key moments in our life uh, change the trajectory of what we do. And it sounds like that's a really special thing that kind of was the root of the inspiration for changing your career path and digging into psychology. So I guess with that, one of the questions I have for you is, you know, how do you define inspiration? Certainly there are people that inspire us. There are role models, you know, there's a life path that we see that probably we don't see the whole, the whole experience of, but we see parts of it that we want to emulate. So there are people, of course, that inspire us. Um, but you know, there's just, when we start to introspect or dig into where do we find our passion, what makes us most happy in the day, you know, those kinds of experiences that we have, those reflections that we have, of course, that's, that's a source of inspiration right now as a scientist, my inspiration really is my students that I work with, especially my PhD and my graduate students, because, you know, they come in, you know, with backgrounds that are really different than mine. Some of them have been, you know, like on a, a, a law degree path or they're, you know, interested in, in medicine. And those are not my areas of expertise, but that's where I find the passion and the excitement is just, you know, they bring a new topic to the table, they get to teach me, and then I can offer my unique skill set to help them give them the tools to study the kinds of questions that they're interested in. So, so, so for me, I guess my inspiration is both of those things, the people and the experience. What do I get most excited about? Collaborations, working with other people, learning from others. And when I, when I experience that, then, you know, that's, that's when I get most jazzed in the day. Mm, I like that. The jazz, like, and so, so (laughs) in tune with the musician in you. Yeah. You can never get that out. (laughs) (laughs) Never, never. So I love that too, because it's so interesting. Um, I love that the students are inspiring you, but what's also really interesting is that even though some of the problems or challenges or lens that they bring to you or the framework is different and not in your area of expertise, I like how you shared that it's really all the same in terms of your unique skill set and the skills you bring to the table to help them see through a different perspective. And I'm sure that's equally inspiring to your students. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, science science is a remarkable skill set and it's a wonderful tool for helping us understand what's true about the world. Intuitions are great. Intuitions oftentimes can lead us down the right path, but we might not necessarily know it. We might not know we're on the right path if we just go based on what our intuition or our gut is telling us. Uh, and sometimes we might be going down the wrong path, but be super confident that what we think is right is actually the best path forward. And so I really like that, you know, science gives us these tools then to, to, to know what is true and to check ourselves. And, and that's something that I know I can offer to other people that I work with. Beautiful. Yeah. I love that. So tied to inspiration, one of my favorite questions I like to ask all my guests is, you know, Emily, what makes you an inspirational leader or what would you say your secret sauce is? <laughs> I mean, that's a good question for my students, I think. And it's hard, it's hard for me to offer that answer. But I think what they would say, and the reason why it's hard for me is that I try to lead with humility. And you know, that's something that my mentors 
taught to me. One in particular, you know, like me, grew up in the Midwest, has a different sort of approach and, and personality style, a, li- a bit more, you know, blending blending in, not trying to be the nail that's standing out. And he he said about science, some of my, about him, my, some of my greatest discoveries have been when I've been wrong. And I'm grateful for that, for having been wrong about something, because I'm not God. Who am I to presume that I know the right answer about the way that humans work and that the way they can make better decisions? Like, who am I to think that I know that in advance of testing those ideas? And so that has just been so ingrained in me, that sort of approach, that way of thinking of like, let's let the world tell us what is true and what's right, rather than imparting our own value set or our beliefs onto the world and expecting that it conforms to what we a priori beforehand thought should should be the case. And I try to take that same humility to the way that I work with other people of, you know, not assuming that I have the right answer, trying to not be the first to speak, to let them do the speaking first, as many of them as want, and then and then try to cull these ideas and find find, you know, these sort of diamonds in the rough to cultivate to cultivate more, but knowing that it's not necessarily me coming in strong and hard saying, this is the way we need to do it. This is the right way forward. You know, I think, I believe that there is a huge need and gap in the world for more humility. So I think that absolutely is part of your secret sauce. And interestingly enough, I had a recent conversation with a good friend of mine about the importance of holding neutral space. So being able to have conversations, whether it's in leadership or in just an intimate, close friendship, building that relationship and to hold neutral space, meaning you don't one, have an agenda uh, two, you're, you know, releasing any judgment that you might have about that person, the conversation that you're having. And I'm drawing a blank on the third one right now, uh, expectations, releasing your expectations. And that's really difficult to do. But again, I just think it's so powerful and we need more leaders that are leading from a place of humility. I had a mentor work with me and my team uh, for the last maybe two years, you know, every couple months coming in to to assess how are things going and offer suggestions for how we can you know, be more collaborative and group. I think, you know, we have been doing great, but like there's always room for improvement. And one of the best pieces of advice that he offered me that I, that I tried to implement as much as possible in my professional relationship, but also it works personally too, is by, as a leader, asking the simple question of like, what can I do this week that will help better support your work in, in the next couple of days or week to weeks to come? That's like such a simple statement. What can I, what can I do this week to help you do your job better? It communicates humility of like, hey, there's an expectation that I know I can improve. It suggests that openness that you're talking about of like, I don't have the right idea. I would love to hear from you what, what you need. And then an openness to act on that, right? And it's not saying like, let's review the last six months and let's make, you know, goals for, you know, for the year on out, right? Like, oh, that just seems so overwhelming to reflect on all that, to synthesize all of the past and like come up with the right goals for the future. So it keeps it as a reasonable goal or a reasonable review period and 
action period. And that's why I think it's so effective because it's, you know, like a small act of micro inclusion, communicating humility, saying, I want your opinions, I value you, and I want to help you feel that you belong more within a unit of time that's that's totally reasonable and doesn't seem like, you know, earth shattering. It's like a, a daily habit that sets, I think, the right tone. And of course, you can say that with your kids, you can say that with your spouse, or like, hey, is there something I can do better this week to make your week easier? Or, you know, what's going on at school? Is there something I can do left this week that might help make this week better than it was last week? Can I do something different? My son is five years old. And when I'm trying to do that, I was just doing that with him on the walk to school this morning. And and he just kept saying, I don't want to go to school. I don't want to go to school. He's transitioning into kindergarten. He's in kindergarten, but it's it's been challenging. And say like, you know, you have to tell me what is it that you don't like so we can figure out the problem and I can help solve it. You know, so what is what can I do this week? And he said, I don't want to have school lunch. I want home lunch. Okay, great. That's easy. I can make, I mean, it's not quite, but but it's concrete, it's actionable, and it's something that he can ask for and, and that I can that I can do. You know, that just sort of sets the tone for a better, more collaborative relationship. For our listeners, I hope that you heard that. That was quite the ninja tip from Emily. That's a great, powerful question for creating humble humbleness, intimacy, and opening a really great conversation. So make sure you take action on that this week if you tuned in and heard that statement. Very powerful. So one of the other questions I wanted to ask you, Emily, is you know how do you define success for yourself and how did you arrive upon this definition? I think it's challenging to think about success as uh, an identifiable moment or experience or title or place. (laughs) I think that sets us up for more negative experiences than positive experiences. Because what it means is that every day that we haven't hit that title, that, that roadmark, whatever we had decided constitutes success, might be experienced as a failure. I didn't get it today. I didn't hit it. I didn't hit it. You know, I didn't get that title. I didn't get that promotion this year. So this year is a failure. And when you accumulate enough of those, you know, little tags in your own mind about today, this week, this year was a failure or I didn't hit my mark, that's going to be demotivating. So to me, I don't try to make those those kinds of definitions of like, you know, by 2023, I'm going to be this person. But instead, you know, I do think about, well, what? path do I want to go on? And then this I try to do for myself, of course, it's easier to say others should do it than sometimes it is for yourself, but to try to just review progress over time and to make sure that I'm, a, I'm you know, at each sort of review period, I'm on a constant trajectory towards improvement. And that to me is what constitutes success. Early on in graduate school, when I was in my PhD program, it was pretty isolating because it was a small program at Cornell University. I was the only person who was accepted to the program and, and, and took the position that year. So there wasn't anybody else that was in my cohort. There wasn't anybody who came in the year before. There's only one or two people the year before that. So there's a big sort of, you know, developmental gap between where I was and my next closest peer. And that, you know, I think that did that took a toll on my psychological experience because when I saw like what were other people doing in my program, they seemed so much more successful than me. And I think that's an experience that a lot of people have. When you come into an established space and you start making social comparisons, you just feel like you come up short. 
right? Oftentimes who stands out, who captures our attention, it's people who are doing amazing things. And so if that's your standard of comparison, either this really awesome person when you're sort of newer to the process or this ideal you that you have created that you're comparing yourself against, there's going to be a lot more times when you think like I'm coming up short than I'm totally beating them. But of course, there might be some of those times you're going to be like, oh, yeah, I aced it. I beat that person out. But that doesn't feel good in the long run. Like maybe in the moment it does. But that isn't like a source of energy or fuel that's going to keep you going to know that you just, you know, you just lapped somebody, for instance. Like, okay, great. That was good in the moment. But like, now what? Now what? <laughs> so, you know, I had that experience in graduate school where I realized that social comparison isn't helping me out here. And, and the only thing that really does is knowing that like I'm on the right track. And I keep making progress and I'm learning. And I try to tell that to my students too, of, you know, we set goals at the beginning of each semester. This is what we hope to accomplish. And, you know, maybe halfway through we check in at the end, we review. And then the beginning of the next semester, we start all over again. And so I'm not saying like, oh, this student is here and you're not here, right? You're at a different place. That's not helpful for anybody. But instead, just having those check-ins where we're accountable to our own personal goals and our own personal progress over time, I think is really what is sustaining for finding that inspiration and the motivation to keep going. So for me, your question forever ago that you asked was, well, how do I define success? I define it as progress and growth. And that's what I'm trying to track rather than did I hit X or did I hit Y? Yeah, I think that's really important. That's why when I work with my clients, one of the first things we do is they define their compass. And so this is something in my proprietary process, but they're putting together their five life priorities and defining exactly what that means so that they're actually doing that on a regular basis. They set their three quarterly business goals, and then they have their long-term motivating factor. And I agree, like just tracking progression in the right direction is the key to success. And then also one, one thing I've noticed is one of the biggest problems, there's six core problems that business owners have and probably people in life as well outside of business. And one of those is this compare and despair. And, and it's just, especially with social media and with how things have been more isolated during this pandemic, there is just so much comparison out there. And the reality is, is there's no point in comparing because we're each on our own journey, our own path, and they're so different. And there's no point in comparing ourselves to others because to even fully understand somebody else's experience is impossible. So stop comparing. And I hope you guys hear that if you're listening to this and you're feeling sad from looking at social media or even comparing your ideal perfect self down the road and you're feeling like you're coming up short, just throw that away because there's no point. Just take one step today towards your longer term goal. And that's all you have to do to feel like you're making some progress. But one of the questions I wanted to ask you too, because you're identifying that clearly this is an ongoing process. So with that, when you're facing challenges along the way, I wanted you to share maybe some challenges or obstacles that you have faced along your journey to success and, and how do you handle those? Sure. I think, you know, something that I experienced and that is a universal, I would dare say, if one could ever use that word, is that our minds, our, our memories are fallible. They make mistakes. And those mistakes, you know, tend to fall in one direction that has, you know, been that that is good in some regards, but can cause us problems when we are trying to make that sort of self-assessment of our own progress. 
And that's, you know, that some information looms larger than in our memories than others. Now, sometimes it can be those like those cringeworthy moments that are tinged with like extreme negative emotion where you made a serious faux pas. And especially if you tended towards rumination, you know, that might be something that you just can't let go of. And so there can be some of these moments where the, the negative experiences are just taking up too much mental space. They are a psychological baggage that's wearing us down. And that might play too big of a role in directing our future actions. But a lot of the times the things that don't spark that intense negative emotion, but that still might not have been the best choices where there's room for improvement and that we might not repeat that, might not want to repeat that choice. We can forget those things. We do tend to forget those things because at the end of the day, like maintaining a positive sense of self really is important for us. And our brains have evolved, our memories have evolved in a way that contributes to that, that, you know, we forget the things that, that maybe weren't so great or that maybe we're, you know, just sort of on one side or the other side of, of neutral, but we need all of that information for us to be in the best and most informed place to make a good decision moving forward. So when we're reflecting on our past and trying to decide like, hey, how did this quarter go? How did this month go with respect to X goal that I have? We can't rely just on our memories because memories lose information. First of all, that is universal. We do not remember all of the experiences we had, especially those that might be relevant to a goal, in particular, those that might be relevant to a goal. And there might be a systematic bias in the types of information that we forget or that we remember. And so that just means we have an incomplete understanding of all the facts of our own case. So when we're trying to decide what do we want to do moving forward, we need to have we need to have all that data. So I suggest, you know, trying to track our experiences daily and then reflect monthly. I had this experience, you know, when I was writing this book, the book that I wrote about goal setting that I, you know, I, I decided for this project, taking the science of obstacles that people face and suggestions for how they might try to traverse those obstacles, I'm going to apply it to something new for me. My son, when I started this book, was one month old. It was exactly the wrong time to be taking on a, a project like this. I hadn't written a book like this before, but this was the opportunity. Take it now or you don't get it, right? I can't, I can't let this go, but I also have a son, so I can't let go of that. <laughs> so I have to juggle, you know, my job. And like reading, leading my research team, having a new son and having this opportunity that I, I really wanted to write this book. And, and I was noticing that like, oh, there's so much going on right now. I'm losing who I am, my sense of self. People were coming over to meet the new baby. Oh, how's it going? You know, tell me what's happening to you. And I just felt like all I have to talk about is, you know, poop and milk. And that's it. <laughs> and it's like, what happened to me? Where am I anymore? Like, I, I used to be really interesting, but... I, that's gone. Um, and so the goal I set for myself was like, you know, I want to become a rock drummer. I want to be a one hit wonder, but I want to be able to play one song really well on the drum kit. And it needs to be a, a cool song, a rock song. And it's not going to be like classical saxophone performance that I had been studying before. So, so that was challenging for me. I'm not really, you know, coordinated in that way. You know, so the, so you know, making four limbs do different stuff behind a drum kit was going to be something that was pretty big. And then I'd have this song that I could play and maybe that would make me interesting in conversation again. So I tried out these strategies. I told my publisher that I, I am going to learn to play a song on drums 
And, and she said, okay, like you have to have a public performance. Otherwise it doesn't matter. Like you have to have something to make, to, to talk about in this book. You can't just say like, oh, I, I didn't learn it in the end. So at, so it was really stressful. I added more stress, more responsibility and a really busy time for me. And so all of which is to say, when I was trying to reflect on my experience, I'm like, am I learning drums? Am I going to be able to like play this in, in a performance so that I can write about it for the book so that I can accomplish this goal that I set out for myself and that I chose? I just felt like I was always coming up short. That's, you know, the take home message is when I reflected on my experience, I just thought I am not learning this song. I have, I have literally taken, you know, bitten more than I can chew. And this is a disaster. But then I started, you know, thinking about memory biases and wondering, I'm stressed, I'm anxious about this, and maybe I'm not giving myself enough credit for the small incremental progress that doesn't make me feel good yet because I can't play drums, but it's still critical and key to actually becoming a one-hit drum wonder. And so I started, I set up this app on my phone to ping me a couple times a day and ask, did you practice drums? Most of the time the answer was no, but sometimes it was yes. And if I said yes, then my phone would ask me, okay, and how did you feel about it? You know, just like give a couple words reflecting on your experience. And so as I thought about it after doing that for a month, I thought, okay, great. Like this is just going to confirm that I haven't made any progress in this month. But when I downloaded all the data from my phone, what I found was I actually practiced more than I thought, you know, some, you know, in that month on average twice a week, which meant like, you know, each day over the weekend, which was a reasonable expectation for when I could really practice drums, especially given that we lived in a one bedroom apartment in Manhattan that was smaller than most people's garages. So actually that was like pretty good. (laughs) So I actually had practiced more than I remembered practicing. And then when I looked at the like adjectives that I used to describe my experience, it started awful. You know, there were horrible words that I used and there were tears that were noted. But by the end of that month, you know, there had been a couple compliments that I gave myself and that, you know, my husband who was hearing me gave to me. And so I could make this connection of like, I actually did practice more and I actually had some positive experiences. None of them were earth shattering, but it was certainly better than what my memory had led me to believe. So that was an important like realization to me about, you know, the power of our brains, sometimes to do good things for us, but sometimes to do bad things, to give us an inaccurate sense of where we really are. And so that's why, you know, one obstacle is how do we, how do we, how do we hold ourselves accountable? We have to know what's true about what we're actually doing to know how far along in the process we've gotten. And we can't rely on our memories to offer that kind of insight. The same way that dietitians or nutritionists would tell people, like, if you eat it, you know, write it <laughs> to keep a daily log of what you're eating. We should do the same thing with how we're spending our time or the progress that we're making on, on any goal that's important to us because our memories are fallible and, and will give us the wrong sense of our own progress. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I've I've talked to my clients quite a bit and recognized in myself this negativity bias from the brain and how even when I I actually this morning, this is so ironic because we're having this conversation, was looking at my goals from last year and checking them. And and I was actually a lot more generous than I've been in the past because I've been practicing what we're talking about for several years at this point, but it takes so much practice. And so for me, one of the key things I have my clients do after they're setting goals is setting a daily acknowledgement time, meaning they're tracking three things that they're really proud of accomplishing for that day. And they could be really small. It could be like, 
you know, I didn't do this and that's like, it would have taken them backwards or I took this small step or I took this really big step and tracking them in a place where they can look at it at the end of the month to reflect on the progress they've made. And I found for myself too, I'll be really hard on myself. I'll be talking to a friend and then they start and they're like, well, why are you stressed out? And I start explaining all the stuff I've got going on. And then they say, but wait a second, aren't you doing all these really cool things? Cause you know, you're posting on social media or things on your website. And, and I forget, like you said, this memory bias and this negativity bias of the brain of all of the amazing things that I have done. And I'm like, it's interesting. We have to have people around us remind us of that or have a process like acknowledging that over time. The other thing I really love that you mentioned was that your book was part of what encouraged you to do this. And I actually just, uh, I'm in the process of launching my first book this January. So when this podcast comes out, it should be launching, I think a week and a half after this is released. And the process of the book is a great way to hold yourself accountable because it's a huge commitment. It's a huge healing process. And it really holds you true to the excitement of this thing you're putting out into the world that you want your readers to benefit from. So it's another excellent way of holding yourself accountable and tracking through those obstacles and even relearning the content that you're teaching your readers about if it's a not not a fictional book, obviously. Right. Absolutely. It's something else that I'll throw in the mix here is that, you know, you and I both have talked about, do we reflect on the past or look to the future? And when we're stressed out, we're often looking at the future of like, I have to do all this stuff in X amount of time, like today or tomorrow or this week or whatever. And that's, what's the cause of stress. And some people say like, yeah, but look at the past and what you've accomplished. Those are, those are two different tacks that we can take, right. For finding inspiration, motivation, and energy. When we're looking to the future and we feel super stressed out, that might not be the kind of energy we want to cultivate, but that's energy nonetheless. And so we should just be, you know, realize that we have these two different tools at our disposal and we can use them strategically. There are researchers at the University of Chicago, a research team led by Ayelet Fishbach, that has looked at that. And when is it, when should we be looking to the future versus looking to the past? And so, you know, there's never one simple solution or the right formula, but something to keep in mind is, is to maybe before deciding, should I reflect on what I've accomplished or start planning, look to see where am I now and how far do I need to go? We should think about, well, how committed are we to this goal and how much expertise do we have in, in this space? Now saying it's fine to say I'm not that committed to a goal. Sometimes there are things that we have to do because they were given to us or they're just not at the top of our priority list, but we still have to do them. So they might be like a lower commitment value to us. And so that might be a case of what the research says, that we might benefit from looking to the past when we're sort of stuck in the middle, right? That's a place where a lot of people drop out of their goals says, you know, you've, you've already had that initial surge of excitement or interest or productivity, but you still have a long ways to go. And that's a point where there's a lot of dropout or attrition. And it's at that point where we might start to self-assess, is this something that really, really matters to me where I feel like I have a lot of expertise and I've been working on this for a long time, or is it one that's lower on my priority list or my commitment list? If it's lower, the research finds that people find more inspiration and motivation by reflecting on their past successes, their past experiences to date, that that is a source of energy to keep them going. It suggests, hey, you can do this. Hey, look at what you've already invested. Are you going to kind of throw that away now and give up? 
and they find a, re a renewal to continue to move through that difficult middle space. But people who are super committed, who have expertise, who have worked hard and long in this area, they actually benefit while in the middle by looking to what's left to come because they didn't doubt that they were going to get this far, right? They knew they were going to be able to get over the, like the first steps, but now it's like, okay, this is all that's left, right? I'm halfway there. Look at what's, what's left to go. And I want to close that gap. Now, of course, that doesn't work for everybody in all circumstances, but it is a way that we can maybe help diagnose or self-assess which one might be more beneficial to me looking back or looking forward. And it might depend on that level of commitment that could vary within an individual, depending on what kind of goal they're working on. Yeah, that's a great point. I find that um, my clients that are really committed to a goal that visualization or, you know, future projection is really, really empowering and inspiring and gives them that energy and new ideas and new perspectives to move forward. But I agree people that it's, it's a goal, but it's when they're not excited about, like sometimes people losing weight or getting healthier, like they're, they're motivated, but they're kind of like, I don't know if I could do this. And sometimes it can be looking to the past to see what other previous successes can I build on to build my confidence so that I continue to move forward. So that's a great lens to look at that from. What I want to do now is shift gears a little bit. I want to ask you, cause you identified as a mentor leader, a few questions around that. So why is mentorship so important to you, Emily? I think, you know, we are, we are just one small cog in this grand universe. And I, and I mean that, like, you know, literally also, I guess, metaphysically or however you want to take that, that there's much more to the world than just our, our place in it. Just like, you know, butterflies can flap their wings and have this huge impact on the world. So can we, right? You never really know what you say or what you do and the ripple effects that it'll, that it'll have and, and how one piece of information can spread. And we're just here for a finite amount of time. And we hope that there is, I think many of us hope that we'll have a lasting impact beyond our own life. And, and so by sharing what we know and by supporting others in their unique journey, I think that's how, that's how we can deal with that. And we have a responsibility to, to share and to support other people's lives. Uh, and it can be selfishly motivated too, that I hope I have an impact beyond myself and my time here. So that, you know, that's why I think being a mentor and sharing with others and supporting their unique vision for what they want in their life is really important. I love that. Yeah. And I guess you've kind of already spoken to this a little bit, but how do you give back to future generations or to your community as a mentor? Yeah, I've spoken about that a little bit. I think probably your listeners have a, have a bit of a sense of it, but here's another concrete responsibility that I I hold for myself. As a scientist, our work is funded by different, by different agencies, National Science Foundation, National Institutes of Health, and other organizations. And they're very generous with giving resources to us to do our work. But that we have a responsibility because like in a literal sense, that's taxpayer dollars. So I have to share that. I personally feel responsible for sharing that information back to thank the people who gave the money to make this work possible. Like, yes, it's part of how I get promoted. And yes, that's how, you know, our research lab grows, but it's far more than that, right? It is not just for me and my own personal career development to receive these grants, to win these kinds of grants and awards, but that money wouldn't be there in the first place if it wasn't for all of the people that helps provide those funds. So I believe it's 
personal responsibility to communicate with the media, to share what we've learned about our science, because it isn't possible without everybody contributing to it in some sense. And some of the work that I do is with adolescents and trying to support their development, especially their beliefs and their own ability to lead. And a lot of the workshops that we do are all of the workshops we do with adolescents are completely pro bono. We don't ask anything of the schools. Oftentimes they're shocked that it doesn't come with a price tag when we say like, hey, can we work with your students? Can we work with your kids? Maybe with their parents if they want and do these, you know, play games. Let's teach them how to juggle and then teach them about the neuroscience of juggling and and what's happening to their brain, even within five minutes of trying to learn how to juggle. And how is that relevant for developing their leadership skills? And we do that because, again, we feel this personal, I feel this personal responsibility to share what we as scientists know that's true, and especially to share it with, with people who might be best positioned to take advantage of it, those that are still developing their beliefs about what the world is really like, and they're looking for different sources of information as they're coming to decide what's true about the world. And, and I hope that we can offer a different perspective or, or complement some perspectives that they're already getting. That's amazing that you guys are working with adolescents because as you just stated, they're in a better position to still change their belief systems a little more readily and easily than in our adulthood, which is very, very difficult to do. It's still possible, but difficult. And I love that you guys are doing that pro bono. That's amazing. I hope you continue to do that work because it's incredibly powerful. But I also wanted to ask you if you could share one of your most inspiring mentee stories. An inspiring mentee story. Hmm. Yeah, there's so many. <laughs> and, and they share similarities as well. Yeah. So, okay. So there's a story of Khalil who, who worked with us for, you know, one summer. You, you know, it wasn't that much time. We're lucky if we get to work with somebody for a year, especially lucky if it's more than that. But we only had a few weeks with Khalil and and he's a very professional young man in college who came to us kind of early in his college time. And so he didn't really get to know that much about his background and his family story, but it's a really powerful one, a very strong, supportive family, but with obstacles you know, that go along with membership in different social demographics and social classes. And so every one of, you know, the opportunities that he took advantage of meant that he's probably working twice as hard (laughs) to to get the job done, right? Having to, you know, work a job so that he can volunteer, right? He can't just volunteer because he still needs to be able to bring money in for his personal and family needs. And so, and all of that was sort of remained hidden, right? He just came in, wanted to do his job professionally. But when you started to unpeel all the layers of what his life was like, it's really incredible the obstacles that he faced in order to have the to present the way that he did to the world. And so it was really grateful to play just a very small part in that, offering him an opportunity and opportunities to get opportunities to get opportunities. And so we had an internship at Facebook. And then, you know, before he graduated from college, he had a job at Facebook and and he went on to an MBA. He had offers to join MBA programs that were going to you know, fully pay for his expenses and all these MBA programs that he could choose from all the top programs around the world. 
that he wanted. He could go to Stanford. He could go, you know, lots of different places where he could go to get his MBA. And so again, like within the first couple of months of being at his MBA, then companies were recognizing his potential. And so even just starting his MBA, he already had multiple job offers that he got to entertain for the, that would happen like in a year and a half from now. And so that's just really exciting. It's like, you know, there's nothing about me personally that, that led to these, right? Like, free MBA, all the jobs that you could want in the world and this amazing story of his of his personal success. And mostly that it's not that he accomplished X, it's that he had options, right? He got to choose what his life was going to be like rather than, you know, what the only thing that was available. So I was happy to get to see that play out and know that, you know, one small opportunity that I, that I gave to him also begets much more opportunities. So that's something that I feel really excited about when that happens. That's so true. And I mean, every opportunity is just a stepping stone to that next thing. And so if you're listening today and you're thinking or feeling really stuck or depressed, or you're in that compare and despair, just remember that even the smallest of opportunities lead to huge opportunities. And there's this ripple effect and this momentum that you get from one opportunity to the next. And it feels equally just as good if you're offering that and paying that forward to somebody else like Emily just shared. So Emily, this has been amazing. We're going to go into our lightning round of questions next. All right. What's your favorite book? Right now, I am really, I'm really into type fiction right now. I've been reading Lisa Jewell. She's an excellent author because she turns writing on its head. She tells you the, the thing, like the big punchline, the plot line of this story. And then you, you read the whole book trying to figure out how do we get from, from the beginning of this to this crazy thing that you've already told me about. So I love that style of writing that takes the whole genre and turns it on its head. I find that really exciting right now. Awesome. Fiction is good too. Helps us with our creativity. So what networking or community group do you love most? There's some really great academic mamas groups that I enjoy that, you know, people find their niche there that they're trying to juggle these two things, being a professor or in an academic research space and also trying to to be a mother and oftentimes being in a, a male dominated or stereotypically male dominated field of, of science, you have to hide what might be considered like your outside identity or a stigmatizing identity of being a mother. And certainly in the past, that was the case, you know, so many stories of people having to hide that they're pregnant for so long, but this doesn't, this doesn't ask you to choose. This space doesn't ask you to choose which identity matters most. In fact, your identity is the combination of these two, of these two domains. Awesome. Uh, what's the best piece of advice you would share with others today? I think we talked about it, the, the compare and despair, just, you know, be your own standard of comparison and don't use others as a metric for how well you're doing. Excellent. And my last question, what's the legacy you wish to leave behind? I hope that people feel that I'm there to support their personal journey rather than see, see my career play out through them. Awesome. I love that. All right. So this has been a wonderful interview with Emily. Emily's been incredibly generous. She is offering our listeners a free gift. You can get a copy of the Clearer, Closer, Better Workbook. The link for that will be in the show notes, as well as if you're on watching this on YouTube in the notes there as well. If you would like to follow Emily, I will have the link for her LinkedIn account, her Psychology Today contributors link, and her Twitter handle. That will also be in the show notes and the YouTube link. Anything else you'd like to add, Emily, before you wrap up? 
I'm just excited to see what all how your how your listeners take this in and what sort of reactions they have. I hope I've provoked some ideas for them that that will inspire their next steps. Fabulous. Uh, you definitely shared some wisdom and excellent ninja tips for the community. So thank you so much. And to our listeners, I looked forward to sharing new stories with you in our next episode. And I hope that you take action that matches the size of your dreams because you are worth it. So how can inspiration contagion help you today? There are three ways. Number one, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on the podcast listener of your choice so that you get newly released weekly interviews with transformational leaders from all around the world. They're going to provide practical, actionable tips for you that you can take and implement today. Number two, if you have a burning problem or you're having some challenges, but you're not really sure where to start. So go ahead and visit hollyjeanjackson.com forward slash events and find an event online that suits your needs so you can begin exploring and learning more today. Number three, if you have a specific issue or challenge you're facing today, a burning issue that you need to resolve right now. Perhaps you're trying to build your guilt-free business. Perhaps you're trying to build an online product or you're facing some challenges with technology in your business. You're trying to scale to that next level. Regardless of what the challenge is, go to hollyjeanjackson.com and then visit the services section and schedule an appointment. I love to offer my listeners a complimentary coaching call so we can figure out and get to the bottom of your problem and explore if coaching is a good fit for you. Those are the three ways Inspiration Contagion can help you today. Remember, nothing changes without action. So be sure to take action today. Thank you for joining the show today. I hope you were inspired. More importantly, I hope you take action. What is one thing you can do in this moment that will inspire someone? Without action, nothing changes. Be the change you wish to see in the world. If this show truly inspired you, we ask that you share it through your network. Help us spread the light and inspiration in the world. I look forward to seeing you here next week.